1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You'll find it on page 988 because this morning we'll begin with verse 12. This is the last of a seven-part series in 1 Thessalonians that we've been going through together as a church family, and I was already thinking it in my mind that for many of you, this is a great day because you are ready to be done with 1 Thessalonians. You have, we've been talking about the end, and you've been waiting for this series to end. It feels like it's maybe uh, gone on in some, in some length, and it's actually a fairly short New Testament letter, but... There is a lot within it, and I can assure you while we've gone through it systematically and a bit by bit, especially, you'll hopefully observe in today's passage, you could really slow down. There is so much that as Paul is trying to finish a letter, he starts to say things, almost, you almost pick up on him wanting to get everything in. You know, you ever have a conversation with someone and you maybe know these are the last words you're going to get to say for a period of time and you don't know how long that period of time is going to be and so you feel like it's ending, you got to go, uh, the, the phone call, something is coming to an end and so you just try to throw in there your last statements and they might be brief but they are often deep. When you feel like you're saying goodbye to somebody whom you will not be able to communicate with for a long period of time, deep words come out that you long to express. And as we read these final instructions, as it's titled for us, and a benediction from Paul, we get what, what Paul is wanting to say when it is all said and done. Now, there are times when we come to a, a passage of Scripture where a situation that's being dealt with is very personal. And for me, the example that I thought of in, in preparing this message is when we go to a, a doctor for a hospital visit. There's something going on, and there's just a sense of, of privacy in that conversation when somebody looks at you and says, what's, what's wrong? You're here because something's not right, and your desire is one that not too many people are listening, that maybe the door is closed, and you can share what is going on in your life that you're concerned about. And sometimes when we come to a passage of scripture, we're actually entering into what is a very personal exchange, where Paul or some other writer is dealing with something very specific about something that's not going well or that's wrong in the life of an individual. And we get to enter into this um, very private conversation. And if we're not there and we don't have maybe the same issue, it's, it's difficult for us to then resonate with what's being talked about in that situation. Well, I guess you feel that pain. I don't feel that pain. I feel this pain. I need advice on this. What we have here at the end of our letter, however, is not the prescriptions for particular problems, but Paul just speaking about general health and wellness in the Christian community. We've, we've said before, this letter is coming to a church with which Paul has very few difficulties, very few troubles going on. This is, one of his, this is his first letter that he's writing. There's a great relationship between himself and the congregation. He's addressed a couple of issues that we've just looked at in the last two messages, but overall, if we had to rate 
the church of Thessalonica with other churches, they're in pretty good shape. And yet Paul does not say to them, therefore, well, I guess there's nothing I can tell you. You're just doing great on your own, so I have no advice for you. No, he sees that they're doing well. And so if, if you and I were to go to a doctor and then say, hey, I'm not coming because I'm complaining about something or I'm feeling something weird, I just want to know, how do I stay healthy? How do, how do I stay well and on the path of avoiding injury and falling in a ditch? And, and just how, how do I keep up on what's going on? Most of us in that situation would receive fairly similar advice, wouldn't we? Because our bodies are designed the same way. There are just some basic principles about appropriate rest, appropriate nutrition, appropriate exercise that can be stated for each and every one of us. And so as we come to this passage, I hope you'll allow yourself to think of it as a passage that is relevant to each and every one of us, encouraging us on what an apostle would say to us even if things were going well. And instead of dealing with a problem, he was simply advising us proactively on what health and wellness looks like in the Christian community. And so we begin in verse 12. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love Because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. And be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another And to everyone, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful He will surely do it. And while you're doing all of that, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss, and I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There are three things that I'd like to highlight from this passage that Paul is encouraging and admonishing all of us as believers that should be true about us for a general health and wellness in our own Christian life. And it's first the embracing and living out our faith in the context of Christian community, that we embrace 
the community of believers. Second, that we embrace communion with the Holy Spirit. And third, that we anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus. There's the community of believers, the communion with the Spirit, and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All three of these things are to be true and characteristic of us as his followers. But notice what Paul assumes as we begin this portion. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, esteem them highly in love. What is, before you ask the question, what is Paul saying, ask the question, what is Paul assuming by this encouragement? What is he assuming in this? Well, he's assuming that the believers in this region are connected to one another. He's assuming that they're in some form of committed relationship with one another. So that if he were to go to one of them and they were to hear him say these words, respect those who labor among you and are over you, and the person were to say, well, no one's over me. No one's laboring among me. Nobody else is responsible for me. I think he'd have sort of a, what, what, did, what did you say? Well, not, I'm a Christian, but there's, there's no one else who's over me. There's no one else who's responsible for me. What, working um, among me who is allowed to admonish me. I, it, it's hard for me to imagine what Paul, Peter, John, all of our New Testament writers, Jesus himself, if they were to come and just engage in casual conversation with the average Christian in North America today, I just imagine that I don't even know if they'd be angry as much as surprised, profoundly surprised and perplexed at the level to which we embrace isolation as a positive thing. That we are unwilling to commit to meaningful relationships. That we are unwilling to hold one another accountable. It's, you could imagine Paul talking to a contemporary Christian who thinks that they're all fine on their own. They don't need anybody. They don't need support from anyone. And they don't need to support anyone else. And say, you're a Christian, right? Yes. What do you read? Why read the New Testament? Some of the stuff I've written? Yeah. Are you sure? What do you mean? I mean, you, you like the stuff I've written. Yeah. But you're not in any committed relationships with any other people. No. Did you, I think they'd just be confused by it. Every letter, the letter to the Thessalonians, the letter to the Ephesians, to the Corinthians, to the Colossians, to the Philippians... Paul, uh, John's writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Every letter that we have is presuming a community of people that are in a committed relationship with one another. And so before we even see exactly what he's saying, we can see even when things are going well, <clears throat> leadership is not called for, community is not called for just when things are going wrong. 
And it's kind of one of those, as long as we're doing okay, we don't need each other. It's only when something goes wrong that all of a sudden we need each other. Well, here's the problem. If we're not with each other, when things are going well, when something goes wrong, who are we going to call on? Who are we going to rely on? Who are we going to ask for prayer and support when we do not know the people that are around us? We have not chosen to commit in relationship with them. And so Paul's encouragement to these believers is, he's assuming that these believers are engaged with one another. They are committed to one another. They have embraced the community that comes in Christian fellowship. And so he can say, be at peace among yourselves. All of you together, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, if you see someone who's idle, admonish them. If you see someone who's faint-hearted, encourage them. If you see someone who's weak, be patient with them. So you see from this description that Paul's got no superficial idea about Christian community, that the reason it's really easy to commit to it is because everyone's a superstar. Everyone's just a spiritual superstar. They know exactly what they're doing and how they're doing it. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that community? Everybody's strong. Everybody's motivated. Everybody's passionate about what they're doing. Doesn't seem to assume that either. He looks at it and says, now this this community that you're going to commit to, there's going to be some people within there that are idle. Some people that are faint-hearted. Something's going on in their life that has them tremendously discouraged or depressed. And then some who are weak. And by the weak, we don't know. Is he speaking about physical weakness, financial weakness, and therefore they need help? We, we don't know. Probably a number of things he is describing in that situation. But these are realities of the community with which we are involved in as Christians. And so he says, be patient with them all. Some of us are willing to admonish, we're willing to encourage, and we're willing to help, but just not for very long. <laughs> I love admonishing. I'm going to tell you one time, and if you don't get it right the first time, I am not telling you again. And Paul's saying, wait a minute. No, yeah, admonish people, but do it patiently. Encourage people, but do it patiently. Help them, support them, but not I helped you once, and that's enough. Be patient with all of them. And I think part of our disappointment that all of us have, I think, at varying degrees, with our experience of church and Christian community, in part comes from inappropriate expectations. You see, when we come into the community expecting that the community will be made up of all the strong, all the motivated, all the robust, passionate Christians we can imagine, when we come up and are faced with the reality that that is not true, somebody sold us on false advertising. That isn't true. That isn't what the community is often like. We are then faint-hearted. We're discouraged, and we begin to rethink if it's worth being a part of community at all. Whereas if we went into it expecting the messiness, expecting the struggle, it would just present for us a very different scenario. For me, the example was yesterday afternoon, I was invited to go four-wheeling. 
I thought, oh, I never, you know, did stuff like that growing up. I wasn't allowed to get messy. I wasn't allowed to make dust or any, anything that would make something unclean. And so this invitation to go and get messy and be out in trails was, okay, yeah, I'll do that. I, I will, wow, I might kill myself. And so, you know, Amy's only encouragement was just please be safe. Come home, okay? Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing on these things. So that, that's my goal. If I just come home... We're great. It was a great afternoon. So when you're thinking about going to something like that, the proper attire is different, right? So, okay, what, what am I willing to get muddy in? If I fall off, if you know, something happens, what do I want to be wearing when that takes place? And so sure enough, there was a point where the gentleman that I was with asked me to lead. And say, I'll go where you go, but I don't know where I am, and I don't even really know how to work this thing. Yeah, I know, but you got to learn somehow. Okay, I'll take the lead. So I go off on this quasi-trail. It wasn't as well-paved as the other ones. And we come to a pass where there's water, and the water spans maybe 8 to 10 feet wide, and therefore, you can't tell how deep it is. So you have to make a decision. Do you try to go alongside of it and get a little bit of ground and a little bit of water, do you go right through the middle, but you have no idea how deep it is? <laughs> and you don't want to get stuck right in the middle. So I make a last-minute decision to try to go on the end, but I made it too last minute, and so the whole thing tips. And I have to kick my leg out and put it right in the muddy water, and the four-wheeler's like this. So now all I'm trying to do is keep this from falling in. And my foot is almost up to my knee in muddy water. Now when you're four-wheeling, that's fun. When you're walking on your way to church and you step in your yard and step in mud or you're trying to get to work and you feel like you've just gotten yourself prepared, that ruins your day. It complicates it because that's not what you're going for. That's not what you're mentally prepared for. You're going hoping to stay clean, hoping to avoid water. When you're out just having a fun time, you're in the wilderness, you understand what might come along with that. And if we could reorient our expectations of the church, because first of all, if we're honest with ourselves, we know we're not perfect. We're not always motivated. We're not always strong. And therefore, if you just take one of me and you multiply it, you you multiply all that. Various times of discouragement, depression, various times of struggle, various times of pain, but it's kind of just like life. It's the wilderness journey that we're on. We're not on the the golden streets yet, where everything's paved and perfect. We're wandering in a wilderness, and sometimes the ground will be dry, and sometimes we will step in the mud. But if our expectations can be reoriented, maybe the level of our discouragement can be changed. Where we say, I think God is doing something here in the midst of this. This is one of the reasons that Christian community makes sense. It's because we don't have it all together. Because we're not always strong. And so we need one another to help each other out in those times where our weaknesses manifest themselves. 
I need when I'm idle somebody to admonish me. I need when I am faint-hearted somebody to encourage me. And I need that when I'm weak that somebody could help me. And when all of those things are adding up and it's a long struggle over months and months and maybe years that somebody can be patient with me. That's what I need. Is that something you feel like you need? That's what Paul's saying. Do that for one another. And see it that no one repays anyone, verse 15, evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Don't pay anyone evil for evil. Our approach as Christians to the reality of injustice and evil is not to see to it that it's simply equally distributed. Our approach as Christians to evil and injustice is not simply to see to it that it's equally distributed. Somebody does something wrong to you. What is the natural tendency to do the wrong back? or to do the wrong to somebody else totally outside of the situation that your wrong is taking place in. And so we experience often the truth that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people, people who have been hurt often hurt other people. And we look at that and say, is that how we respond to evil? We pass it on. We make sure it's distributed. We want somebody else to feel the pain that we feel. We want them to feel the isolation we felt. We felt ignored. We want them to feel ignored. And a very simple example that I often give for this is how many times have you ever now in this day and age of cell phones and text messaging, our expectation of the time in which somebody responds is increased, right? You know, before you'd leave a message and if somebody got back to you in three days, you were happy with that. Now, because the assumption is communication is much more instant, the expectation is that the response will be much faster. And so just think of your own expectation of the difference between leaving a message on a phone, calling someone's cell phone or sending someone a text, your expectation of how quickly you, you anticipate a response. And it it gets briefer that when you send a text message to someone, you anticipate a response relatively quickly. You you call someone's cell phone, you no longer think, well, maybe they're in a meeting or maybe they're this or that. They have it on them. It's called a a cell phone. It goes with them. And so then, let's say you call and you end up leaving a message. And then that person calls you back and you pull out your phone and you see who the number is. What do you think? They didn't answer the last time I called them. They made me leave a message. I'll let this go and do a message. Now, it could be some perfectly legitimate reason. They were in a meeting. They were in the bathroom. They were something. But your feeling is you were ignored. You were passed by. You weren't important enough to be addressed in the moment. So what do you do with that? And here Paul is saying, look, evil's going to happen to us. People are going to wrong us. Maybe even some of these people that we're being patient with and admonishing and encouraging and helping are going to bite us. Evil things are going to happen to us. But 
his encouragement is do not respond in kind. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Don't pass on the evil. Don't pass on the injustice. Be the person who puts an end to it, who moves past it, and can do good for someone else, who can encourage someone else. And from this now context of community, starting in verse 16, I think he's describing what is true of communion with the Holy Spirit, where he would later in Galatians describe the fruit of the Spirit, much of that, Uh, could be found in here. Verse 16, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit or despise prophecies but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Here, hopefully, it's clear to you that even though these are very, very short statements, they are packed with truth. This is not just a great place to memorize Bible verses, although it is a great place to start. If you've never memorized a Bible verse, it does not get much easier than 1 Thessalonians 5.16. It's two words. That's it. Two words. Rejoice always. You get encouraged, you have a Bible verse memorized, go to the next one. It's three words. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. 20, do not despise prophecies. They're short verses, summary statements of truth that we enjoy, not just for their brevity. But I wonder if you ever come to a passage like this and you, you think something of what I thought, which once you just get to verse 14 and you go through this, just notice this. Be patient with everybody. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Always rejoice. Don't ever stop praying. Give thanks in all circumstances. Do you just want to stop and say, Paul, (laughs) have you ever met a Christian? What is... Be at peace with everyone. Always do what's right. Always be thankful. Never stop praying. Paul, (laughs) do you never stop praying? Never once? Are you always patient with everybody? Can you rejoice in every situation? And we have to ask ourselves, is Paul recommending something, encouraging something that is possible or not possible? What do we believe? Is he being very unrealistic here in his encouragement to us to be patient with everyone, to do good to everyone, to rejoice always? It'd be so much easier if it said rejoice with the people who are fun to be with and you always like rejoicing with them. Do good to all those who do good back to you. Give thanks when people give you things. Don't quench the spirit when you like the idea that the person has, but he refuses to add on qualifying statements which we often are tempted to do, which excuse us from taking these things seriously. I'm really supposed to rejoice always? I'm really supposed to pray in all, without ceasing? Give thanks in all circumstances? 
This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you and for me. To do this and to do this in communion with God's spirit. We know naturally we can't do any of this. We're not equipped to do this. And Paul is not encouraging us to do this in our own strength, which is why, as we've said before, Paul's letter to these believers begins and ends with the theme of grace. He starts in chapter one by saying to them, grace to you and peace. And then he moves into his letter. And when he ends this letter in verse 28, he caps it off with, again, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with you. You and I are not able to do these things that the scriptures are asking of us to do. So if we can do them, we can only do them in communion with God's spirit and his grace pouring out from us. And so we ask the question, not can I do this, but can he? Do I believe that God's spirit can always seek good for one another and for everyone? Do I believe that his spirit can be in constant communion and connection with the Father, that there's no break, never a break, in the praying and the exchange that goes on? And that he, the spirit, is constantly moving, constantly testing, and able to be generous towards all. If I believe that, then the question is, am I allowing his spirit to work through me? Am I allowing his spirit that is capable of all that you and I are not capable of to work? To be doing good, to be rejoicing and praying, giving thanks and not quenching the spirit. So he encourages us to be connected to one another in community as believers and to be in communion with his spirit and to never allow our commitment to community to fight against our communion with the spirit. And so he's saying, don't quench the spirit. Don't be so organized, if you will, that there's never a room for any spontaneity. Don't come to the table with your ideas of how everything has to work such that you're never open to the possibility of how the spirit is working in the life of another person. Don't quench that when somebody else is being moved by the spirit to do something, to try something, to go somewhere. Don't quench that. Don't throw water on that. Encourage that. Don't despise prophecies. And then he balances that out. Now, We also have to test everything. Not every idea is a good idea simply because it's expressed or because it's new. So test everything, but test things in such a way that you do not quench the spirit of God in the life of the church. Because that's what people need to see. Not only our faith in the Jesus who was here, who we remember what he did, but our living relationship right now with the spirit that we are in communion with God and therefore being led by him. And then he ends with a prayer saying to all of us for our own health and wellness as Christians that we are to be connected to community, that we are to be in communion with the Spirit, in verse 23, that we are to look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now may 
the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. It is God's desire to continually through community with one another and communion in his spirit to prepare us for his coming. This is God's desire for you and for me that we, our whole spirit, soul, and body, all that we are as individual persons would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And some of you maybe don't have that perspective of God. You believe that it's God's desire to kill all the joy that you desire in your life, to remove all of the fun and the passion that you feel exists in the world. That's not Paul's perspective. Paul believes that God himself desires your wholeness. And not just a a wholeness in your mind, but a wholeness in your body, that, that all that you are as a human being can flourish the way he created it to flourish. And yes, there'll be times when you and I will come with specific problems and aches and pains that don't make sense to us, and we will need prescriptions and wisdom outside of us for how to deal with that. But even when things seem to be operating Normally, the will of God for you and for me is to see that we can attain a sense of completeness and fullness in him that we flourish, that we are enjoying the journey that he has us on and enjoying it and anticipating all that it means is yet to come that we can get excited about the reality of his return, that the best of what we can do together here on this earth at best is a trailer for the real show. At its best, it's a trailer for the real thing. Can we be excited about that? Can we live in anticipation of that and be characterized by that, that we are looking forward to what is yet to come. An example that's often given to me that always touches me when I think about it and how we can be characterized by this sense of longing for his coming, how that shapes everything we do, everything we think, the way we treat one another. Because if we don't start there, if we don't begin there with that reality in the end, it's what makes it almost impossible to obey these verses. You see, we have to repay people evil for evil because we don't really believe that there is a day when he's going to make all things right. So we have to make it right now because we don't believe that he will make it right then. But if we can hold out and believe that he who calls us is faithful, he will surely do it. It's like us going on a trip, in a temporary trip, And say you're going camping for the weekend and you just begin to load up on stuff. You begin to pack up stuff. And you need your basics and you get 
those things, but then all of a sudden, you know, somebody says, well, why don't we bring this? Well, why don't we bring that? And why don't we bring this? And somebody stops and says, you guys know we're only going for a weekend, right? We're not moving. This isn't home. Home is yet, home is, is coming. We don't, we don't have to try to make this home. We don't have to try to make this perfect. Because we believe that perfect is coming. And it's coming by him who is faithful. Him who is true to all of his promises. And he is bringing it with him. And therefore, neither myself or anybody else here has been given the responsibility or charged with the task to make everything here and now perfect, to remove all the pain, all the pain, all the displeasure, all the difficulty that will come in our lives, but rather to gather together in the messiness of all of that and encourage one another about a reality that is coming an end which we long to begin in his timing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us that can speak to us in any situation. That you have words for us wisdom how to live how to enjoy and flourish and thrive and grow and mature in our Christian lives Father we thank you that your purposes toward us are for our completeness for our wholeness for our perfection that you have great plans for each and every one of us, greater than we can even fathom. And if there's anyone here who still struggles to see you in that way, we pray that through your spirit you would break through. That they would not take the hurts that other people have done to them and allow those pains, those regrets to affect their view of you but that they could see you in a whole new light, loving them, caring for them, longing for their best. And Father, for those of us who who see you that way, help us to live in such a way that we are excited about your purposes for us. As we move forward and begin to study other portions of your scripture, as we go out into our week and resume all the responsibilities that are before us, we pray that your spirit would do what it alone can do. Keep the vision in front of us. Keep the end before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.